Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. everybody. Welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series talking about biblical sexuality and how it's under attack. Today, focusing on the authority of scripture and the growing challenge of sexual ethics. Recently, in the executive editor of the New York Times uh, in an interview with NPR said that we don't get religion. We don't get the role of religion in people's lives. Now, when the editor of a major newspaper in the United States makes this statement, we should stand up and take notice. In our society today, truth really does matter because behind every truth claim is a worldview. People are always preaching their worldview, and some are clearer about what that worldview is than others are. We need to understand that secularism is not just a philosophy. It's not just an ideology. It's a philosophy. Everyone is doing theology, R.C. Sproul once said. The question is whether you're a good theologian or you're a bad theologian. Secularism is a bad theology because its central conviction is is that if you don't believe its beliefs, you will be silenced. At the heart of secularism is the advancement of a even a moral and a sexual revolution, telling people they must believe in homosexuality or even other non-biblical proclivities. Otherwise, you're considered a bigot, a homophobe, And therefore, your opinions and your thoughts should be silenced in the public square. And as we consider the thoughts and the claims of this editor of the New York Times, we need to understand that it's not just out there that people like this have these thoughts. The problem exists concerning the matter of biblical truth right within the walls of our very churches. Biblical truth is never a matter to be trifled with, and there are always fault lines. And one of those major fault lines that reveals whether one has a biblical worldview or not is on the subject of marriage and the family. And so today we're going to talk about the current discussion surrounding biblical gender in our culture. We're going to examine what scripture teaches regarding gender, sexuality, and biblical marriage. We're also going to talk about how this is under attack in the church today. And then we're going to talk about how Christians should relate to homosexuals and even so-called gay Christians. This is a very vital topic for us to talk about today because it, it because we have a foundation in scripture from which to defend the purity of God's perfect design for marriage in the inerrant infallible word of God. In recent days, there's been much discussion inside the church and outside the church regarding the issue of gay marriage. One example of this inside the church is from former pastor Rob Bell, who preached at an Episcopal church in California. And in response to a question regarding same sex, Bell said, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it is a, a man and a woman, a woman and a man, a man and a woman. I think the ship has sailed and I think the church needs. I think this is the world we are living in 
And we need to affirm people where they're at. Another voice advocating for change on same-sex marriage in the church is William Kent, a member of the United Methodist Committee to Study Homosexuality. At the end of the study, he says this, The scriptural texts in the Old and New Testament condemning homosexual practices are neither inspired by God, nor are they of enduring Christian value. And another voice is Gary David Comstock, the the Protestant chaplain at Wesleyan University, he says, not to recognize, critique, and condemn Paul's equation of godlessness with homosexuality as dangerous, to remain within our respective Christian traditions and not challenge those passages that degrade and destroy us is to contribute to our own oppression. Those passages will be brought up and used again and again against us until Christians demand their removal from the biblical canon or at the very least formally discredit their authority to prescribe behavior. Luke Timothy Johnson, Robert W. Woodruff, professor of New Testament and Christian origins at the Chandler School of Theology at Emory University takes Gary's uh, suggestion one step further stating the Bible nowhere speaks positively or even neutrally about same-sex love. And then he says this, I think it's important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to which tell us to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God's created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premise of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. Daniel Heimbach helpfully writes in True Sexual Morality, He says that the stakes in the current conflict over sex are more critical, more central, and more essential than any controversy the church has ever known. This is a momentous statement, but I make it soberly, without exaggeration. Conflict over sex these days is not just challenging tradition, orthodoxy, and respect for authority in areas such as ordination, marriage, and gender roles, and it does not just affect critically important doctrines like the sanctity of human life, the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture, the Trinity, and the incarnation of Christ. Rather, war over sex among Christians is now raging over the absolutely essential matters of faith about which no one can truly be a Christian in the first place. Matters such as sin, salvation, the gospel, and the identity of God himself. Now, outside the church, gay marriage is an issue that's been ruled on by the Supreme Court. In other nations around the world, it's going to be dealt with more in the coming days ahead. On April 1st, 2001, the Netherlands became the first nation to legalize same-sex marriages. And since then, a massive change has swept across different nations, and most Western countries now allow same-sex marriage to be legal. In 2001, the United States Supreme Court mandated the that same-sex marriage be legal in all 50 states in a Burgerfell versus Hodge decision. The ruling was controversial because the majority of the states had laws limiting marriage to one man and one woman, laws usually passed by a referendum of the citizens themselves. Many Christians consider a Burgerfell decision a case of judicial overreach and they hope to have it overruled by a more conservative court at some point in the future. The decision by the Supreme Court has changed the landscape of America for generations. 
Dr. Albert Muller remarks that the very fact that the march for same-sex marriage has reached this point is telling it it reveals a fundamental confusion at the very heart of our society. The ideological support for same-sex marriage is deeply embedded in a whole host of ideas that are driving our society to the point of a moral breakdown. And so the U.S. Supreme Court may very well decide the future of marriage is a legal institution, but the church must hold to marriage as far more, but not less than a legal reality. Marriage is one of the God's most gracious gifts to humanity. It will be the church's responsibility to honor marriage no matter what the court may decide. Now, in recent years, we've seen the increase of support leading to the Obergefell decision and after the Obergefell decision. In 2004, only 31% of Americans favored same-sex marriage. By 2019, support had grown to more than 60% of Americans. One in six Gen Z young adults identify as LGBTQ, according to data from 2020. Amongst Gen Z who identify as LGBTQ, 72% say they identify as bisexual, which means 12% of all Gen Z adults identify as bisexual. By contrast, about half of millennials, the next generation older, who identify as LGBTQ, say they are bisexual. Now, our young people are under assault in high school and in college. In fact, in an article titled, Christian Higher Ed Can't Win, David P. Gushy, who at one time held to a traditional view of sexuality between one man and one woman in marriage, argued that the that evangelicals cannot win the LGBTQ debate on their Christian campuses. Instead, he argues that evangelicals must adapt our culture's view of sexuality. And his, he, his argument is that schools will have an eruption of LGBTQ policies and they will find themselves in the national headlines. And so he states that the LGBTQ students are unwilling to accept some straight guy declaring to them that they can't be both gay and straight, or Christian and gay, and they won't tolerate second-class status on campus. And so Gushy declares that students, whether Christian or not, arrive on campus having been exposed to tolerance, inclusion, and full acceptance of LGBTQ rights. Erwin Lutzer comments on this article stating, no matter what the school's doctrinal and even lifestyle statement says, the argument is, is that LGBTQ rights are a core value in our culture and the schools cannot or will not withstand the pressure. The bottom line is Christian colleges and seminaries are going to have to, uh, are going to, have to compromise the historical Christian understanding of sexuality and gender or be hopelessly left behind. They will lose their voice and their credibility. They'll be on the wrong side of history. And already we're seeing legislation designed to deny funding to all school and receive financial loans if they don't accept the full spectrum of LGBTQ rights. Now, many Christian colleges and even universities throughout the United States are caving into pressure for LGBTQ students and telling students that the school is a safe place for LGBTQ students to wrestle with their sexuality. Dr. Lutzer comments that the next logical step is for the schools to hire sympathetic staff who want to stand up for the rights of the same sex and transgender students, but this is never going to be enough. Once a school's administration has started down this road, there is no stopping until the full spectrum of the LGBTQ agenda is dutifully embraced. Another recent law, the Equality Act, 
H.R.5 passed the U.S. House of Representatives on May 20th, 2019. This law also tells us where our culture is headed. Madeline Kearns comments on this law stating that the sweeping legislation would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected characteristics. Under the guise of anti-discrimination protections, the bill redefines sex to include gender identity. It undermines religious freedom. It gives males who identify as females the right to woman's space as such a dangerous precedence for the medicalization of gender-confused youth. Now, in our cultural climate, whether we're a parent, we're a pastor, we're a university president, we're a seminary professor, we're a layperson, we must arm ourselves with the Word of God, and we must stand upon all that Scripture teaches. We must refuse to compromise with the culture like the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, 1-6 did and embrace pagan sexuality. And now that we've considered this significant challenge inside and even outside the church on gender and sexuality, let's talk about what scripture teaches about gender and sexuality. Now, one of the central questions, also one of the most fundamental issues of our day revolves around one significant question. Is the Bible's teaching on gender roles and sexuality true? And if it's true, we need to ask the question. Does this mean that homosexuality, transgenders, pornography, masturbation, or sex outside of marriage is wrong? The answer to those questions is biblically yes. Biblical sexuality and biblical gender roles begin in the heartbeat of our Creator God. And first he took man from the dust and breathed life to him. He, he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And he took a rib from Adam and made Eve, according to Genesis 1, 26-27 and Genesis 2, 20-24. He made man first and then he made Eve to be a helpmate. This is significant. And so the next question we need to ask is, does the authority of Scripture matter, not matter on issues related to biblical sexuality and biblical generals? Now, you're truthfully going to get a dozen different answers on that question from different quarters of contemporary evangelicalism. And what it boils down to it, to it is this. What we believe about the authority of the Bible matters. Either the Bible's teaching is clear on Genesis 1-2 through and Ephesians 5 and many other Bible references about the place of a man, the role of a wife, or it's not. Dr. Owen Strayon is right when he says, if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how man may be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority, whether the Bible is inerrant, then the major issue of our time is one of anthropology, what it means to be human. And to the degree that the church stands on the word, it will continue proclaiming the biblical truth about morality, generals, and sexuality, all from the word of God. And the issue before us is framed as it is because the whole issue of marriage and even the family being under attack as one of authority. At the heart of this attack is the question under consideration. Is God authoritative over all, or am I free to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it? What our culture wants is a God that only comes so near, but he never makes any demands. And yet, the God of the Bible is the opposite of this. Because he makes demands through his own character, which is utterly holy and perfect and good and true. The God of the Bible not only says he will come near, but he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts along with the very numbers of hairs on our head. And so let's talk about biblical arguments for marriage. In the beginning, God created man in his image and likeness. 
The Lord saw that man needed a helpmate, and so he took a rib from Adam and formed Eve. Adam and Eve then became one flesh, and the Lord established the institution of marriage. In Leviticus 18, the Lord gave laws related to sexual practice. These laws teach the general prohibition against adultery in Exodus 2 for, uh, 20, 14. Leviticus 18, 22 outlaws all homosexuality. When it says, you shall not lie with a man, male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Romans 1, 26 through 27 makes it clear that God gave them up to dishonorable passions, a reference that goes back to Romans 1, 18 and 24. God gave them up as used in Romans 1, 24 is a Greek judicial term for handing over a prisoner to his sentence. And when men abandon God in this way, he will allow them to remain in their self-made prisons. He accomplishes this indirectly and immediately by removing his restraint, allowing their sin to run its course, and directly and eventually by specific acts of divine judgment and punishment. The dishonorable passions mentioned in Romans 1.26 are further identified in Romans 1.26 and 27 as homosexuality, a very the very sin forbidden in Scripture in Genesis 19, Leviticus 18:22, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, and Jude 7. And rather than the usual Greek term for women in Romans 1:26, women refers to the general word for female. Paul mentions women first to show the extent of the debauchery under the wrath of abandonment because in most cultures, women are the last to be affected by the moral collapse. Now, in Romans 1.27, Paul notes the law of sowing and reaping to demonstrate how it's come to effect, referring to the self-destructive nature of moral perversion. The Bible calls believers to be holy in all aspects of our lives, including the parts involving sexual desire. And it's not enough to surrender your all of yourself except your sexuality. We're called to be holy as the Lord is holy in 1 Peter 1, 13-15. This means whether in marriage or singleness, we are to be wholly surrendered to Jesus Christ, who, which is why we are to be daily shaped more and more into his likeness. Now, the real question the announcement of Bell and the verdict of the Supreme Court brings to the forefront the arguments that Bell, Comstock, Gushy, Ken, Luke made, as well as the verdict of the Supreme Court and the Equality Act to bring to the forefront is this question. How should Christians relate to homosexuals? And we need to think hard and biblically about this question. Now, Frank Turek rightly comments, marriage is a social institution that provides society with the very foundation of civilization the procreating family unit. Marriage in the Bible is defined as one man and one woman joined together in covenant marriage under God for all of life to love one another as Christ loved the church. The question is, is how should Christians relate to homosexuals? It's an important one because it encouraged Christians to think biblically so they can offer gospel hope to those ensnared with the gospel. And now what, hap what happens next when, when teaching and defending marriage between one man and one woman is the ac accusation by the opposing side non-Christian is even some biblically illiterate Christians of being judgmental. While it may be true at times that some Christians are guilty of judging uh, someone engaging in homosexuality, the Bible is clear on the subject. The Bible stands in judgment of men, not men in judgment of the Bible. Answering that particular objection is Dr. Peter Jones of the Truth Exchange, who says it has become 
it has become common to encourage Christians to show 100% acceptance and 0% judgment, especially when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Such acceptance is seen as the only way to demonstrate God's love. Acceptance of other people is essential, for no man can judge another. But speaking of God's love without explaining who God is depersonalizes both God and love. There's no such thing as love in general. It must be directed to a person and used to build up others and bring them to Jesus Christ in true maturity. Each person is responsible uh, as a created human being. It's 100% acceptance of who God is. Have we accepted, have we exchanged, excuse me, the, the God revealed in Scripture for a sentimental notion of a non-judgmental ho-ho Santa Claus or a spiritual force which we are sure the culture will embrace, Jones says. Now we can easily see now how Romans 1, 26-27 is one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament, at least in recent times. While Matthew 7, 1-2 may be the most used passage even by non-Christians, Romans 1, 26 and 27 is quickly becoming the go-to passage for those seeking to qualify the truth of Scripture for their own means. According to one website that promotes a homosexual-friendly reading of Romans 1, 26-27, Romans 1 has nothing to do with homosexuality because gays and lesbians are never mentioned in Romans 1. Noted Bible scholar Dr. Tom Schreiner, commenting on Romans 1, 24-32, correctly rejects this approach, asserting that idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. To worship corruptible animals and human beings instead of the incorruptible God is to turn the created order upside down. Human beings were intended to have sexual relations with those of the opposite sex. And just as idolatry is a violation and a perversion of what God intended, so too homosexual relations are contrary to what God planned when he created men and women. Now, Romans 1, 18-32 makes a clear distinction between the creator and the creature when Paul focuses on God and his invisible attributes. Dr. Schreiner further elaborates, explaining modern controversy over homosexuality has led to a reevaluation of this text. Some scholars argue that Paul does not condemn all forms of homosexuality, but only homosexual acts practiced by people who are naturally heterosexual. And according to this interpretation, to act contrary to nature involves engaging in sexual activity that is contrary to the personal nature or character of the individual. And thus, Paul should uh, not be understood as implying that all homosexuality is contrary to what God intended from creation. He speaks only against homosexual acts that are practiced by those who are heterosexual by nature. John Boswell, in attempting to reinterpret Paul's words, claims that the person Paul condemns are manifestly not homosexual. What he derogates are the homosexual acts committed by apparently heterosexual persons. The whole point of Romans 1, in fact, is to stigmatize persons who have rejected their calling, gotten off the true path they were on. Dr. Schreiner rebuffs this, saying this interpretation must be rejected since there's no evidence that Paul understood the nature of human beings in the individual and the psychological sense that is familiar to people in the 21st century. Biblical scholars Richard Rays and David Malik notes that Paul rejects homosexuality as contrary to the created order. Homosexuality is a violation of what God intended when he created men and women. The Jewish historian Josephus declares the 
The marriage of a man is according to nature and proceeds from Old Testament law. Both Phileo and Josephus specifically criticize homosexual relations. Schreiner affirms this, saying, There is no evidence that Paul reverses the unanimous Jewish conviction that homosexuality was sinful. John Calvin, that great reformer, once stated that the natural world is a theater of God's glory. Romans 1, 18-32 deals with how the Lord God has made himself known to humanity, but man rejected him and replaced him with other objects of worship. God allowed two judgments in response to this, one of homosexual behavior and another of the immoral mind, each which demonstrate his relinquishment of these or these men or women and his wrath towards humanity's rebellion. And now when one considers both the context and what Romans 1, 26-27 means. It becomes clear Romans 1 does talk about homosexuality. Homosexual behavior in the eyes of God is a sin. And whether you believe that or reject it is a matter of utmost importance and urgency. Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 6 9-10, through Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And when God who created man in his image and likeness speaks, a man or a woman must heed the word. To not heed what God has declared is to reject him as he's been revealed in the word. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, when he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the good news. God, as the creator, has a right to insist and even demand what he wills of the creation. He can take away our lives or continue to sustain them. That's his right. And yet God in his mercy continues to reach out to mankind through the person and the work of Christ. Paul, before his discussion on the creator-creature distinction, provides a message of the gospel and the righteousness of God in Romans 1, 16-17. The righteousness of God refers to God satisfying his justice by putting the penalty of humanity's sin fully on Jesus. It is revealed to those who confess faith in Christ, so that they might live faithfully before his face. While the homosexual community rejects the clear teaching of Romans 1, God still reaches out to them, calling them to turn from their idolatry to himself through the Lord Jesus, who promises to credit sinners with his righteousness when they put their trust and confidence in him. And despite being called out more than once, it needs to be said again and again, homosexuality is not the worst sin. Paul makes clear in Romans 3.23 and 6.23 that all have sinned, which means everyone needs the righteousness of God in Christ. Only the Lord Jesus can save, and he does so through his person and through his work. We need to understand that everybody is engaged in theology today. The person who identifies as LGBTQ is saying that they have convictions, they have ideas about how they want to function in life, when where they want to find meaning, identity, value, and worth. Those who identify as LGBTQ want to live from this worldview and to be accepted as such. To be clear, what the LGBTQ community wants is to be accepted as who they are without reservation and without qualification. To put it another way, they want to be accepted as they are and to believe as they are. What we need to understand today is everybody has a set of doctrines to which they adhere. Deeply embedded into every person is the desire for truth, which according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity on our hearts. And so when we consider what identity, meaning, value, and worth are from a biblical worldview, we, we see that the problems with interpreting the Bible through the lens of the world instead of from Scripture. Sometime around 2001 to 2002, I remember sitting 
with a lady having a conversation over a meal in a public restaurant. She was a fellow student in one of my classes at a local community college in the Seattle area. She had questions about what Christians thought about homosexuality since she was part of the LGBTQ community. Her questions during our conversation concerned what Christians thought about desire. What I tried to help her see is that her desires were out of order. God assigns a specific gender for men and women respectively and both are to function within that specifically assigned gender according to a biblical worldview. God created men and women to be equal in dignity, value, and worth, but he also assigned to them different roles and functions. Now, behind the gay Christian movement are a lot of wrong convictions about the Bible along with misinterpretations of it. And as we've seen, the gay Christian movement says it doesn't support the viewpoint that Scripture teaches. The wrongness of a man being with a man and or a woman being with a woman sexually. And yet what we have to understand is even at the most fundamental level is that God himself says that he created man from the dust and then he and then created Eve from Adam's rib. And so to justify this position, the gay Christian movement has to disregard Genesis 1 through 2 along with Romans 1 through 2 entirely, as well as many other passages to justify their viewpoint. In fact, the whole idea behind the gay Christian movement, it begins with the wrong presuppositions about the Bible. And yet there are entire movements to make homosexuality normalized in the church today. For example, consider in 2006, Brian McLaren suggested to evangelicals that we have a five-year moratorium on homosexuality. After five years, to nobody's surprise at all, what what did he do? He McLaren came out and taught that the church was wrong on biblical sexuality. We, we ask, where's your evidence, Brian? Where's your evidence? There was no evidence given for his claim. Just his thinking, his opinion on the topic. And this is precisely the problem with the idea that one can be gay and Christian or or a gay Christian and celibate. The problem is, is that makes the Bible say what you want to say rather than saying what the Bible says. It reinterprets the Bible to reflect our opinion, thereby freeing us to justify that opinion because we're freed from the supposed shackles of biblical authority. In our society today, biblically faithful Christians are facing an avalanche of massive proportions and and challenges to biblical sexuality in general on every front. And to be sure, we should not be silent on these issues. But make no mistake about it, the issue of gay Christianity or being gay but celibate Christian is a massive one. There is everything at stake. The issue is this, is Jesus Lord over everything, including our sexual organs, our sexual desires, and our sexual feelings? Is Jesus Lord over everything, including our morality and our life decisions? The answer that the Bible gives is a resounding yes, and this is grounded in the person and work of Christ. And isn't it interesting, as we look at the Gospels, when Jesus ministers to people in sexual sin, he does so lovingly. His goal is not to shame people, to shatter them into a million pieces with wrath and even harsh words. Instead, he comes with the overwhelming grace of God, the full authority of the Son of God, and the full power of the Son of Man to purify and to cleanse them with the forgiveness of sins. And think about the woman at the well in John 4. The woman at the well asks Jesus questions in John 4, 9, John 4, 11 through 12, and he responds to her questions which in turn exposed her need for him. In John 4.10, John 
13 through 14, John 4, 16 through 18, and John 4, 21 through 25. The woman recognized Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus responds by saying in John 4, 26, I who speak to you am he the Messiah. And yet today we're told that those people who sin sexually can biblically do whatever they want. Jesus' response to the woman at the well teaches the opposite of this viewpoint. Jesus doesn't leave this woman to live how she wants to live. She is saved. She is transformed by Jesus from her sexual sin. The rest of John 4 tells us how she goes back to her village and she brings the village to Jesus, who then tells them about himself. According to the opposing position, we can live how we want to because we're morally autonomous creatures who will not ultimately be held accountable and responsible for our behavior by our creator. The truth is that we are doubly owned by the Lord God by virtue of him being the creator and the Lord over all. And so from every angle, the the biblical worldview of the scriptures has a better story and a better hermeneutic than the one advanced by the gay Christian movement. If I walk up to a Mormon, for example, and ask if he's a Mormon and a Christian, he's going to tell me that he's a Mormon Christian. The Mormon identifies as a Mormon, but also as a Christian. A similar mindset is held by those who hold to the LGBTQ viewpoint. They are going to tell you that they're gay and Christian. Well, the problem with that viewpoint is that anything that hyphenates the term Christian, it creates an idol out of the other thing. The only identity the Bible recognizes as Christian is the one who has been legally forgiven of their sins by Jesus' blood and whose sin is no longer remembered before him. And we're seeing an entire movement of people who say that Jesus and Paul supported the gay Christian idea because they were celibate. And therefore, biblically faithful Christians must believe that one can be gay and Christian as long as they remain celibate. God does not merely demand a partial surrender to himself. He demands lordship over one's entire being. The real question is this, who does Jesus say you are? The answer is the adopted son or daughter of the king. And when we allow God alone to dictate our identity, the things we hold closest to our hearts, yes, even our sexual identities fall away in the light of his glory. As Christians, we must recognize that doctrine divides. It's often thought, albeit errantly, that homosexuality is the worst type of sin. But it's not. All sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. When we sin against the Lord, whether in our thoughts and our actions, we are choosing to identify with that, uh, to find our identity, our meaning, our value and worth in that thought or action more so than God. At the root of the gay Christian movement is a mindset that one would rather identify as gay first than as a Christian rather than simply just as Christian. And as we've seen, there's a significant difference between the worldview of Christian from the Bible and that of gay Christian. The first one comes to the Bible and sees it as the very word of God, but the other casts doubt on the scriptures to support their position. And when we do this, we force an interpretation or a meaning upon scripture that was never intended. Jesus and Paul were never gay. They did not tell people to go against the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures all because of one's opinion. Jesus expounded upon the Old Testament because he viewed it as authoritative, as he said in Matthew 5, 17-20, John 5, 39, and Luke 24. In the same way, Paul also did, grounding his arguments on eldership found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 on the creation order found in Genesis 2. And so at the end of the day, when we consider from whence arguments come, we must understand them at a fundamental level. 
by upholding the teaching of Romans 1, which builds itself upon the foundation of Genesis 1 through 2, the Bible stands against the gay Christian movement. The only way to accept gay Christianity is by completely rejecting Romans 1 and therefore Genesis 1 through 2 and other passages. At that point, you have, as J. Gresham Machen said, another religion. You do not have biblical Christianity anymore. Worldviews matter because people matter. Behind those worldviews are convictions. Behind those convictions are choices. Behind the choices we make is the identity that we align with. And so those who hold to the gay Christian view, they teach a form, a view of doctrine, but it's not sound biblical orthodox doctrine. Their perspective cannot nourish your soul. It cannot help you to grow in grace because their view leads people away from the scripture and thus away from the God of the Bible. Rather than obedience, the gay Christian perspective leads men and women creating the image and likeness of God into rebellion against God himself. In Christ, every person can have a new identity, but only when the Lord sovereignly removes their heart of stone and replaces it with a new one. And this is where the Christian's true identity lies, not in an opinion, but in a person who is fully revealed in the word of God. It's not only a wrong hermeneutic being used by the gay Christian movement, it's an erroneous view of the person the Bible centers on, Jesus Christ. And that leads to all sorts of errors, including the, to the wrong Jesus, the one of our popular culture, instead of to the real Jesus who is fully revealed in the word of God. It is not unloving to point out the wrong biblical interpretation in the gay Christian movement. True Bible-believing Christians tell people they are wrong in their interpretation of Scripture, not because we get an enjoyment out of it, but we do so out of love, as Ephesians 4.15 says, to speak the truth in love. If Christians get enjoyment out of telling people that they're wrong, they don't understand that they too can and perhaps will fall. Instead, Christians point out the error that they do to highlight the truth of God's word and love. Christians make the argument from the scripture to say a soul is at stake and eternity is on the line. That's not unloving and non-Christians should even expect, even demand Christians to make that argument and to make it passionately so that souls may be won for the sake of Christ. And sadly, many Christians today, they don't make that argument because they've chosen to live a worldly life instead of a godly life of Christ. As Christians, we must stand on the full authority of the word of God, and we must proclaim the authority of Jesus over everything, including our sexuality. If we fail in that task, we will concede not only the argument, but the gay Christian movement is going to continue to make advancements in the church. The best apologetic against error is to preach the whole counsel of God, since the Bible is its own best apologetic. Either Christians are going to stand on the Bible or we're going to fall on our own sword. Either we will see the Lord through his word by his spirit, bringing the dead to new life, equipping the saints for service to make disciples, or we are going to cave to the cultural accommodation. Biblical man and woman had begin with the vision of God's glory. God created man and then and then from man's rib he created woman. All this is good. It displays the glory of God. And because some people think that biblical manhood and womanhood do not explain what scripture teaches, we must understand that these concepts are not add-ons to the gospel. They give shape, they give meaning, they give definition to the Christian worldview. The foundation from which we can defend the purity of God's perfect design for marriage is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. And when we have a biblical view of the glory of God, we will rightly understand the relationship between the sexes. 
Men are to lead in the home and in the church, and there is a difference in function and role between the sexes. Men are to lovingly lead, to provide, to care for the families, just as Christ does for the church. Women are to respect their husbands and to provide a nurturing environment in the home. Furthermore, the Bible gives the standard by which we are to live as the people of God. Biblical man and womanhood fill out the details and they provide a framework for how we're to have relationships. Married couples are to live their lives under God in a manner consistent with the calling they've received from Christ and obey Him. Singles are called to live their lives for the glory of God. Dear Christian, find your identity, find your worth and value in Christ alone. And so whether we're talking about personhood, generals, marriage, uh, ethics, or something else, we're living in a time, make no mistake about it, when the authority of Scripture is under assault. And we need to be people fully convinced of the authority of Scripture and be daily shaped by the Word of God. As we close today, I, I want to give one final uh, story and then uh, a last closing thought. Recently, I was talking with uh, the counseling pastor at my church, and he has counseled many people that are transgender and homosexual over the years. And he told me one story of a man coming into his office, and uh, this, this man said, I, I heard that you counsel from the Bible, sir. And he said, yes, he, he did. And he started talking to him and he invited him to come into his office and had a chat with him. And he said, do you really believe that this man asked, do you really believe the Bible? And he said, yes, can we open it? And, and I can talk with you about it. And he opened to one of the passages we considered early, previously in this episode from first uh, Corinthians six, nine through 11. And he read from it and the man was pierced to the heart by the word through the ministry of the spirit. And the man was saved in that pa- in my pastor's office. And that is a glorious story because here all this pastor was doing, he's not going to be known to the annals of church history or, or, or known outside of, of the area in which we live or anything of the like. But here is a faithful man of God. Here's a faithful biblical counselor taking the word and bringing it to bear on, on somebody's life. This man that was saved in this pastor's office came back and said, you know what? The Lord has used me to help now hundreds of people. And I just want to say, thank you for being faithful to the word. And so what I want to say today uh, before we wrap up is this, do not fail to be faithful to the word of God. Christian, this is all that we have. All that we have is the word. We must be faithful to the word of God. It's not going to be popular. It's it's going to get harder and harder, but be faithful to the word. Show, show the argument. Show how their arguments don't cohere with the biblical worldview. The Bible is its own best apologetic. Nobody is neutral in their worldview. Everybody is espousing their worldview. Our job as Christians is to go out and to preach the truth in love, to make disciples, to show, hey, this is the truth. This is the truth. And you know what? There is so much error happening on gender and sexuality in our day. It is, as I mentioned in this episode, a fault line. It is going to reveal whether you are a real and true Christian, that you are standing on the word which tells you about Christ. There's no other way to know God other than as he's revealed himself in the word. We must be clear about this today. We must stand on the word. Well, I I have said quite a bit in this episode. We'll we're going to talk more about this in the coming days as we have in the past. But I want to I want to let you know where we're headed the rest of this month. 
Next, uh, next time, I'm going to talk with you about transgenderism and worship, responding to a cultural crisis. This is going to be a very important episode. After that, I have some very important conversations that I'm going to have with somebody who the Lord uh, saved out of transgenderism. We're going to have two conversations uh, with this person. Um, we're going to talk about you know, their, their story, how they came out of it. Uh, we're going to talk about transgenderism and sports. We're going to talk about many, many different things. I'm, I'm really excited. That's going to be two episodes. At the end of the month, I'm, I'm talking with Dr. Nancy Percy about her new book on toxic masculinity. Friends, we're living in times, make no mistake about it, we need to use our voice and we need to use it clearly. So I want to encourage you, whether you listen, wherever you listen to your podcasts, to go ahead and subscribe there. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. Uh, you can go over to our YouTube channel, uh, YouTube slash Servants of Grace. You can find us there. Uh, you can find us at Sermon Audio as well. Sermon Audio slash Servants of Grace. Uh, check out our website. We have tw- 23 years of resources for you. Uh, We have over 20-plus issues of our magazine that the Lord continues to bless. We have hundreds of articles from writers all over the world. Well, friends, it is, as always, a privilege to talk with you. Um, I I am so thankful for how the Lord is continuing to use this podcast all around the world. Um, If you're listening, um, just know that I, I, I would love to hear from you. Uh, my email is dave at servantsofgrace.org. And now until next Monday or Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.